0: Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on.
1: Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better.
0: Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast.
1: Where the history is wacky and so are we.
0: You're hanging out with the outlandish historians,
1: Adrian and Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do.
0: Hey guys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. This is episode four of our podcast and the third part in our Titanic miniseries. Now, you really don't need to listen to the first two episodes to catch up to the story,
1: but we do recommend it considering how much research we did put into it. So please, please, please listen to episode one and two, but... Don't if you really don't want to, I guess.
0: Well, we insist that you do if you don't. Here is your recap. Previously on the Dear World Love History Podcast.
1: The Titanic was built in Belfast. She picked up passengers. She went out onto the Atlantic. And then there was an iceberg. Done. Caught up. All
0: right, so now that we're caught up, while Episode 1 and 2 covered the building of the Titanic, her launch, setting sail for the maiden voyage, picking up passengers, and all the things there are to do on the ship, Episode 3 will be covering the sinking in its entirety.
1: By the way, I have tissues.
0: Perfect. We're going to need those. And speaking of which, guys, if you get upset watching sad movies, reading sad books, you know, you cried during the Titanic movie, you might need some tissues for this one as well. It's not a happy story. Most of the passengers did not survive the sinking. Most of the crew did not survive the sinking. Okay, this is not a fairy tale ending for most people that went on board that ship. And we cried while doing all the research. We cried while compiling all the research. And we might cry while recording this episode and you might as well so if you do and you're driving pull over to the side of the road do not drive and cry I don't recommend it
1: so in episode two we left off with iceberg dead ahead however with this episode we're going to be picking up with the morning of April 14th 1912 so at that point they were about 400 miles away from Newfoundland in Canada and they had traveled a little over 1400 miles across the Atlantic Now, the Titanic was scheduled to arrive in New York on Wednesday, April 17th. However, it was looking like they were going to arrive a little bit earlier ahead of schedule on Tuesday, the 16th, in the late hours. Now, this was because the Titanic was sailing at almost top speed, which was a whopping 25 miles an hour. Now, guys, we have to understand this is a ship that is moving through very dense water. 25 miles an hour is pretty fast for a ship.
0: All right, so since the ship is going so fast, Captain Smith actually ordered his officers to steer the Titanic a further 10 miles south to avoid any possible ice fields, especially since he had received some ice warnings starting on Friday, April 12th. Between Friday and Sunday, there had been several ice warnings that had come in from many different ships, one of which was the French ship La Touraine, which came in on Friday. Uh, Then there were warnings that also came in on Saturday, one of which was through a signal lamp as the Titanic was passing this other ship. And there were a whole ton of other warnings that came through on Sunday, the night the Titanic hit the iceberg.
1: So, Sunday, April 14th, was just another day to the passengers and the crew. They went about their lives as normal. There, As it was a Sunday, there were services being held. There was supposed to be a lifeboat drill. However, it was canceled because of the strong winds. Now, while life on deck was pretty much normal, it was a mess in the Marconi room. So Jack Phillips and Harold Bride had spent all of Friday night into Saturday morning repairing the wireless machine that had broken down. So, as a result, they were backlogged on all the passenger messages that were waiting to be sent out. So, they were working tirelessly to get that done. So, on Sunday, the first ice warning that came in was at 9 a.m. And it was from one of Cunard's ships, the Coronia, warning them of the ice fields and the growlers and all of that. And that was taken to the bridge. And around the same time, the Nordum, which was a Dutch ship, was also sending them a warning.
0: Another warning came in around 1.42 p.m. from White Star ship Baltic. Uh, This warning was telling the Titanic about the large amounts of field ice that they had passed by. The message was given to Captain Smith, who then gave it to Bruce Ismay, who then put it in his pocket. Now, he wandered around the ship, basically showing this uh, warning to anyone who would take a look at it in first class. Captain Smith did eventually get it back from him later on in the evening, and then the accounts differ as to what happens next. One account says that, yes, the warning was taken to the bridge and the officers saw it. Another one says that, no, we really don't know what happened to that warning. There's no proof that it was ever taken to the bridge and anyone but Captain Smith, Bruce Ismay, and the wireless operators saw it.
1: The next warning came in a few minutes later at 1.45 p.m. from America, which was one of the German ships. However, here's the thing with this one. It was a private conversation that was overheard by Phillips. So. They did not take that message and give it to anyone at all.
0: Then around 545, um, this is the time when Captain Smith made the decision to change the course a little bit and make the uh, Titanic sail 10 miles further south in order to avoid all of this ice. At least that's what we assume he was doing um, when he changed his course. Then around 730, the Californian, which was a Leyland line, ship... Uh, sent a warning, which was then taken to the bridge. And uh, unfortunately, the captain did not see that one because he was currently enjoying some delicious dinner in the dining room.
1: And around 9.40 p.m., the Titanic received a message from the Masaba warning them of the ice fields. So this message was never taken to the bridge as Phillips was still too busy and Harold Bride was taking a well-deserved nap.
0: And the last warning came in around 11 p.m., the night the Titanic sank. This was 40 minutes before she spotted and hit that iceberg. So this last warning came from Cyril Evans, who was the wireless operator on the Californian. He came through and unfortunately interrupted Jack Phillips while he was in the middle of relaying messages to Kate Brace. This was such a bad move to make uh, for Cyril Evans, especially to an experienced wireless operator like Jack Phillips, who was considered the best in the world. He had earned the nickname Sparks because he was the fastest on the uh, wireless. He could type out 39 words per minute, whereas most other operators could only do 25. So he made Jack Phillips so mad. The message came through so loud. It hurt his ears. And in retaliation, uh, basically told him to butt out. His exact words were, Shut up, shut up. I am busy. I am working Cape Race. And, uh, dude, I totally feel you. I get where you're coming from. He is stressed, he is mad, and this guy just interrupted out of nowhere. Bad move, Mr. Evans, even though it was good intentions. So, unfortunately, um, that meant that Cyril Evans was um, a bit embarrassed, we'll say. Um, And he waited a little bit longer, but since Jack Phillips was still busy typing out messages to Kate Brace, he shut off the wireless and went to bed. And after Phillips was done with all the messages he had to send to Cape Race, he did try to reach out to Evans to apologize, but again, Evans had already shut off the machine and gone to sleep, so Phillips was unable to do so. And what makes it even worse is that Evans had shut off the wireless a few minutes before 1130, which was 10 minutes before the iceberg was spotted and the Titanic hit it. So the Californian's wireless was not on when the Titanic hit that iceberg.
1: Let's jump back to a little bit before the iceberg is spotted. So the evening of April 14th was especially nippy. Temperatures were right around freezing by 7.30 p.m. and still dropping after that. Now most of the passengers went inside, it was too cold, and spent their evening indoors. But the evening was especially lovely from a passenger's point of view. So the water is nice and calm. There's no moon so they're able to see, you know, all the nice stars. Not much of a breeze if they were outside. But from a lookout's point of view, the conditions were awful, to say the least. So because there was no moon and there was because there was barely any breeze, there was nothing to disrupt the current of the water, so they weren't able to see or hear water slapping against any icebergs that might be in their path, and because they couldn't locate the binoculars, they wouldn't be able to see the iceberg until they were practically on top of it. When 2nd Officer Toller was done his shift at 10, he reminded 1st Officer Murdoch that they might hit ice around 11 p.m. Unfortunately, no extra lookouts, aside from the two already in the crow's nest, were posted that night.
0: All right, guys, so this is where shit is going to start hitting the fucking fan. For the rest of the episode, we're going to start flip-flopping, or not so much flip-flopping, as moving between three different ships. The first is obviously the Titanic. The second is the SS Californian, which was near the Titanic throughout her entire sinking. And the third is the Carpathia. So starting off, we are now moving on over to the SS Californian.
1: Alright, so at about 11.15pm on the Californian, 3rd Officer Charles Groves noticed that there was a ship in the distance. So he estimated that it was a passenger ship just because of how well lit it was, which allowed him to see all the many decks that the Titanic has. And around the same time, Captain Stanley Lord, who was actually in the chart room at the time, also noticed a ship in the distance. Kind of curious, he went over to the wireless room and asked... Evans, if there were any ships in the area, Evans told him it was the Titanic. Since the Californian had already stopped for the night due to the ice, they were surrounded by it. He told Evans to let the Titanic know, yo, there's ice, be careful out there. And this is actually when Evans interrupted Phillips while he was talking to Cape Brace and then proceeded to tell Evans to shut up because he was jamming him. So... Evans butted out, waited a little bit, and then shut off the wireless a little bit before 1130. So at around 1130, Groves actually went down to the chart room to talk to Lord. He said, hey, there is a passenger steamer in the distance. And Lord said, yeah, no, no, it's not actually a passenger ship. He believed that the ship was similar in size to the Californian. And just to give you kind of an estimate of that, the Californian was a cargo ship. And it was allowed to carry nearly 50 passengers outside of the crew. So not a big ship at all. So Groves, he really did believe that it was a passenger ship. He wasn't wrong. And he also said, hey Cap, like this ship seems to be kind of close, maybe about 10 miles. Stanley Lord said, heh, whatever. I'm going into my chat room. Let me know if there's anything that's going on, anything changes, okay, so groves goes back up, and around eleven forty he noticed that the ship's lights dimmed kind of went out, and he wasn't initially worried by it, considering in that time it wasn't uncommon for ships to kind of turn off their lights or dim them around midnight, which we were close to, just so that passengers could go to sleep, so he kind of thought nothing of it really i love that captain lord was like "Heh,
0: i'm going down to the chart room i mean were those the exact words
1: yeah he like the records say he gave like a grunt a non-committal grunt Heh. yep okay i'm cool with that mm-hmm. stanley lord is a piece of work there really is no other way to say <laughs> You're it i gonna say piece of shit <laughs> well okay i'm sorry let me rephrase stanley lord is a piece of shit
0: renee really loves this guy in i case do you
1: notice god i wanted to throw him into the ocean
0: but we're not there yet
1: we're not there yet i'm so sorry you will also grow to hate him the like the further we get into telling you about him and what he does
0: yeah i think you're gonna well i mean renee's gonna start a club club we hate stanley lord club
1: what are you talking about there's already a club so you're just going to join? <laughs> yep.
0: Could pay the member's
1: fee? Oh my god, yep. Whatever that is? I don't care what it is. Take all my money.
0: Yep. <laughs> okay, Um. well, now that we've established Renee's uh, severe hatred for Stanley Lord, a guy you guys have barely met in this episode, uh, we will encounter him later on though, uh, we are going to head on back to the Titanic and um, hold on to your hats, guys, because things only go downhill from here. And get those tissues ready. You're going to need them.
1: It's a few minutes past 11.30 p.m. You are up in the crow's nest with Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee, two of the six lookouts that were working in two-hour shifts. It is freezing cold, and the Titanic is traveling at 22.5 knots. When you look out on the ocean, it's completely flat. There is no moon. There is no breeze. And the sky is a black canvas with stars.
0: All right, so Fleet and Lee are up in the crow's nest, right? And the Titanic is traveling at top speed, basically. And suddenly, there is a shape somewhere in the distance. Looks small. The closer the Titanic gets to that shape, the larger it becomes. Suddenly, Frederick Fleet rings the crow's nest bell three times. That means there's danger ahead. At the same exact time he is ringing the crow's nest bell, he calls down to the bridge where 6th Officer Moody picks up the phone.
1: What do you see?
0: Iceberg right ahead. Thank you. The way Officer Moody says thank you is very aloof per the records we read, and it's kind of like, Thank you. Yes, I would like more biscuits with my tea. Um, Obviously, I'm sure he was panicking on the inside. um, But when he says thank you, it's just like, thank you. Thanks. Cool. Moving on. Okay, so after that call comes through, after 6th Officer Moody speaks to Fleet on the phone, here's what happens next.
1: Moody called out to 1st Officer Murdoch, who at this point was already aware of the iceberg and was moving to signal with the telegraph machine for full speed astern and then he sent a second telegraph to the engine room to reverse engines.
0: At the same time Murdoch is doing this, he calls out to Quartermaster Robert Hitchens for hard a starboard. So starboard is right on a ship, port is left. When he told Hitchens to turn hard a starboard,
1: that actually turned the bow of the ship, that's the front of the ship, to the left. And once the bow had started to swing out... Murdoch then gave the order for the ship to turn hard a port so that when the ship was maneuvering around the iceberg that the back would also miss completely.
0: So think of it in terms of if let's say there's a trash can lying in the middle of the road and you're driving right at it, you turn to go around that trash can, right? So the first thing is you turn your car to the left and it starts going out over, uh, around that trash can And then the back of the car follows suit, and you go around the trash can and go back into your lane. That's what they were trying to do with the ship. And after that was accomplished, after Quartermaster Hitchens was turning the wheel, Murdoch actually flipped the switch to close the watertight doors down in the hull of the ship. So that's where the firemen and the stokers were.
1: Moody, Murdoch, Lee, and Fleet very likely held their breath. What happened next took all of 37 seconds. That's it. The Titanic continued to sail straight, and the iceberg continued to grow closer. And just when they thought that she was going to crash into the iceberg, the Titanic started to turn, and the stern turned as well. Okay, so
0: as we mentioned in an earlier episode, the Titanic was the largest ship to be built in the world at that time. So as a big ship, it's a lot harder to handle, especially when going in and out of turns. That's why it took her so long to make that turn to the left and then to the right. So she made that turn. She turned to port. Then she turned to starboard. And they thought, whew, we are in the clear. We glided past that iceberg. Everything is safe. Everyone is gravy. No. So Fleet is standing there and probably thinking, you know, thank God. We've made it. And... Then he hears the iceberg scrape against the hull of the ship. So at the time, they thought that the iceberg had just torn this huge gash in the side of the ship. But what actually happened is the iceberg punctured the hull several times. So if you've ever seen James Cameron's Titanic, he shows that. The iceberg just punctures the side of the hull several times before water floods in. It's not one big long gash. At the same time, because the top of the ship does scrape the iceberg as well, huge chunks of ice fall onto the deck. There's no damage on the top, just on the bottom, where they can't see it. They could hear it, but they couldn't see it. Um, And I'm sure it also made the ship vibrate. So, go to YouTube. Okay, pause. Go to YouTube. Type in the search, Titanic, iceberg. One of the first things that comes up should be the clip, ranging from the time that fleet calls down to the bridge um and you see the entire scenario happen um or watch it after we're gonna link you up in the show notes
1: as well because if you're driving as i listen to podcasts when i drive i know adrian does as well do not pause do not go to youtube keep your eyes on the road and just keep going because we will leave a link in our show notes
0: this was the beginning of the end of the titanic now there are were other things that could have happened in order to save the Titanic. Historians have discussed and debated it over the years. Um one of which was the speed at which the Titanic went around that iceberg. So if Murdoch had kept the Titanic at full speed at 22 and a half knots, she likely would have been able to round the iceberg and miss it altogether. Instead, he slowed her down, which slows the turn, which means she was even more likely to hit it which is exactly what happened
1: murdoch did have another option he also could have just let the titanic hit the iceberg dead on now the side of a hull is a lot weaker than the front of a ship so had the ship actually hit head on into the iceberg it's very likely that she would have one stayed afloat and been able to link back to port back to new york that is or two, stay afloat long enough for help to actually get there and minimize the loss of life and or completely eliminate the need for loss of life.
0: Well, not necessarily, because if she would have crashed head on, there are bunks up at the front of the ship. So had she crushed into that iceberg with the bow, then that might have actually really seriously affected any crew members and passengers that were at the front of the ship
1: all right i stand by the first option minimize the loss of life because that would have been what a few hundred
0: yeah in comparison to uh 1500
1: that is a stark difference now there is something else and this has nothing to do with what murdoch may have been able to do this is more so how the titanic been built differently how the titanic had a inner hull and the side hole, like the outer hull, was punctured and the water's just rushing in, that inner hull would have kept the engine rooms dry, and the Titanic may have been able to just get to New York slowly, but been able to do so, because the inner structure of the ship would have remained.
0: Yeah, and it's the same thing where, or she might have, you know, been able to stay afloat long enough for a ship to arrive and either A, remove the passengers or several ships really to arrive, or B, tug the Titanic back to um, either, I mean, an option is to return her to England, but more likely would have towed her into
1: New York Harbor. Or very possibly Canada, since they were a few hundred miles off from there as well. Yeah, off the coast of Halifax. Meanwhile, down in the boiler rooms, fireman Fred Barrett had been chatting it up with Assistant Second Engineer James Hasketh, when all of a sudden, the warning light above the watertight door started flashing red, and at that point, the starboard side pretty much w- like caved in as water started flowing in, and that was in boiler room 5 and 6, and the watertight compartment door started to close. While the boiler rooms a little further back were still dry, the men were trying to get their bearings as the watertight compartment doors were closing, as they had been thrown to the ground due to the impact of the Titanic hitting the iceberg. As we see in the film Titanic, when the watertight compartment doors closed, men were trapped, like still trapped inside of the engine room. However, this was not actually the case, as once the watertight compartment doors closed, they could be reopened by hand or there was actually an escape ladder that they could scurry up in case of emergency, which this would 100% be the case. Now, in engine room number five, they had the pumps going because they were trying to get all the water out. And in the meantime, they were shutting the dampers in order to close down the boilers. So, good news, there was no water. In boiler room five, they were able to get it out. And the men were not trapped in the engine room, boiler room, what have you. Bad news. This is the end of the good news.
0: Yes, so while the men in boiler room 5 were rejoicing and celebrating the fact that the water was out, the men who were going to replace them in the 12-4 to shift were actually waking up to discover that their rooms were flooded, and they had to drag their beds out of those rooms.
1: So while this was going on in the boiler rooms... The iceberg collision was felt differently in the upper deck levels.
0: The passengers actually felt the ship hit the iceberg. So there was one passenger, per the accounts we read in A Night to Remember and other books as well, one of these passengers said it felt like uh, going over a thousand marbles. And some of the third-class passengers were actually thrown from their beds when the Titanic hit the iceberg.
1: Meanwhile, down in the first-class dining saloon, some of the stewards were sitting around table chatting, you know, doing whatever they were doing. And one of them, James Johnson, actually thought they were going to be going back to Harlan and Wolf because he thought they dropped a propeller. And someone agreed and yelled, another Belfast trip. Uh, Madeline Astor, on the other hand,
0: um, thought that something had happened in the kitchen, like a ton of plates or, you know, something was dropped and it
1: made a huge crash. And then there was J. Bruce Ismay, who was woken from a dead sleep. And unlike everybody else, he knew the Titanic had hit something. He just didn't know what it was. Boy, was he in for a surprise. Now,
0: we're going to head on back to the bridge where we're going to meet up with our Titanic officers. So, back on the bridge, uh, the, you know, First Officer Murdoch is standing there, Sixth Officer Moody, Quartermaster Hitchens, the captain, Captain Smith, runs out of his cabin to find out what the heck just happened. Here's how it went down, per the account, in A Night to Remember by Sir Walter Lord. Mr. Murdoch, what was that?
1: An iceberg, sir. I hard-a-starboarded and reversed the engines, and I was going to hard-a-port around it, but she was too close. I couldn't do any more. Close the emergency doors. The doors are already closed.
0: Now that would have happened with uh, Captain Smith having a British accent and... First Murdoch uh, being Scottish, I do believe. You can watch the exchange in James Cameron's Titanic film for that. But that was the basic uh, dialogue between the two when
1: Captain Smith appeared on the bridge. All right. So Captain Smith suspecting that there was some damage, extensive damage, and we would learn some serious damage to the ship actually called down for the engines to stop. And after a few minutes, the Titanic came to a stop and laid pretty much dead in the water. And the three working funnels, as the fourth was a dummy, were just given off lots of steam, and it was just making this awful loud screeching noise. So think of a kettle on the stove. The hotter the water gets, the more the pressure builds inside, the louder the screeching. Now think of that on the scale of the Titanic. Big ship, big screech. And the lookouts pretty much, as if nothing had happened, resumed their watch back up in the crow's nest. Alright, so now we have the passengers who are curious. What is going on? What was this jarring whatever it was? So they're coming outside, they're looking around, looking out onto the water, looking over the railing, going everywhere, trying to figure out what just happened. And you have these passengers in various states of... Not undress, but just dress. You have people in bathrobes. You have people in fur coats, in full evening garb, in, like, some were in bed, some were still up, and all of these passengers are milling about. And eventually, many of them went back in, because it was so cold that night, but also because of how loud the screeching was from the tunnels, the funnels.
0: Yeah, Renee, those are funnels, not tunnels. Shut up! There are no tunnels on the ship. Anyway, so down in the depths of the ship in the passenger cabins, uh, they also realized when the ship came to a stop. So first class passenger Renee Harris said her clothing stopped swinging back and forth in her uh, closet when the ship stopped. First class passenger Emily Ryerson asked her steward, you know, what just happened? I felt a weird thing happen. And the steward was like, oh, you know, there's an iceberg or something. It'll be fine. There's no need to panic. No need to worry. Uh, Then we have Harvey Collier, who was one of the passengers who went up to check it out, see what was going on, and he came back down and was like, yeah, there's an iceberg, but I asked one of the officers, and he was like, everything is fine, sir. Everything's fine. Then we have John Jacob Astor, who was also completely unconcerned. And, uh, told his wife as such, and, you know, the evening continued on as usual. Now, when the Titanic brushed by the iceberg, uh, some of the chunks of ice actually fell down onto the deck. This was the third class passenger deck, and that's what some of the third class passengers found when they went up to explore.
1: Meanwhile, the passengers in third class had a very different experience, such as Carl Johnson, who was in a room closer to the bow, closest, actually, to the bow, When he got up to check what was all this brouhaha, the the water was already seeping underneath his door and around his feet, and by the time he got himself dressed, the water was over his shoes. And then there was also Daniel Buckley, who we met in episode two. He took a little bit longer to get out of bed, but by the time he did, the water was actually around his ankles already. So basically what this meant was that the third-class passengers knew that there was something wrong before the second- or first-class passengers ever did.
0: Yeah, so while first- and second-class passengers are going back to bed or reading or whatever it is that they were doing before the iceberg happened, the third-class passengers were already starting to uh, panic, I guess is a good way to put it. Before we mentioned that... um captain smith ordered the ship to come to a stop now we learn here that lawrence beasley second class passenger went up to the deck to check out what was going on a whole bunch of stuff happened where he then went back to his room then came back out again and he actually noticed that the ship was moving slowly through the water um, which is also corroborated by quartermaster alfred oliver who said that the captain actually ordered half speed ahead and the ship went on for another 10 minutes at this slow pace before Captain Smith ordered a full stop. So what does this mean for the Titanic? Um, It might mean that, you know, Captain Smith was waiting to see what exactly the damage was, maybe he hoped it wasn't too bad that they could actually still make their way to uh, perhaps Halifax or to New York under their own steam. But once Chief Officer Wilde um, told him that no, there's serious damage down there, he ordered a full stop and the Titanic ground to a halt.
1: So Captain Smith sent Boxhall down to look about the ship and make sure that everything was okay. And Boxhall came back and was like, yeah, everything's fine. Captain Smith, on the other hand, was kind of there like, "Mm, that doesn't seem right. I don't think everything's okay. Go find the carpenter. Uh, Because the carpenter was supposed to sound the ship. So in trying to find the carpenter, Boxhall actually bumped into him as carpenter Jay Hutchinson was on his way up to the bridge to talk to the captain. And he said that she's making water fast. And right on his heels was Iago Smith, who was from the mailroom to say that the mailroom is filling up rapidly. So things are not okay, not in the slightest.
0: Okay, so we return to the mailroom for the last and final time. The post office was located at FDEC with the mailroom directly below that. So there were about 3,300 mailed letters ready to be sorted once they reached New York. Um, obviously this was not going to be happening, and the mail clerks were so dedicated to their jobs that when the mailroom began to fill with water, they started pulling those sacks out of there, pulling those mailbags. They actually um, convinced some of the stewards to help them get sacks out of there. They managed to get about 200 sacks out of the mailroom because they really wanted to save those letters. Um, And unfortunately, that's all that they could do. And at the end of all of this... It was so futile. I mean, bless those mail clerks. They ended up dying in the course of trying to save the mail. None of the mail clerks survived. We said there were five of them.
1: All five mail clerks died. Back on deck, Bruce Ismay was the next to arrive on the scene. So when Captain Smith told him about the iceberg, he asked, Do you think the ship is seriously damaged? To which the captain replied,
0: I'm afraid she is.
1: And so, of course, the next person to be called was Thomas Andrews. So who else would be called other than the man behind the ship? So he and Captain Smith took a tour of the Titanic to get a lay of the land to see what the damage really was. And they discovered that the first five compartments had been flooded. So within the first 10 minutes, the water was 14 feet above the keel level except in boiler room number five. Now, this was because the men had been using the pumps to get the water out. However, that had bought them mere minutes, which may have helped the officers on deck load a few more people into the lifeboats. Unfortunately, it eventually did flood. So, the five compartments that were flooded were the number one hold, number two hold, the mail room, boiler room number six, and boiler room number five.
0: Okay, so when the Titanic was designed, they provided for an eventuality where the ship might end up flooding. So, they designed it where if the first two compartments were flooded, the Titanic could still stay afloat. If three were flooded, she'd still float. If four compartments flooded, she could still stay afloat. If five compartments were flooded, the Titanic would would not be able to keep above water. As was said at the time, as was said word for word in the James Cameron Titanic film, with five compartments flooded, the Titanic sinking was a mathematical certainty. Now, why is this? Bulkheads. The bulkheads were not built high enough. We mentioned this in episode one during the building. The bulkheads only went as high as deck. So with the first five compartments flooded, the front of the ship would sink so low that water would start to bounce from compartment to compartment. As each compartment flooded, the water would then move through into the next one, fill it with water, and then move into the next one. And this is what brought the ship down by the bow. This is what made the Titanic sink so fast. So the closing of those watertight doors upon the initial impact with the iceberg probably didn't do much. Thomas Andrews estimated that the ship would sink within two hours. So there's some debate in terms of the closure of those doors. Um, We read where the closing of the doors might have actually made the ship sink a little bit faster because the water was trapped, had nowhere to go, and thus had to find different exits, Um, which it did because that's what water does when it's flooding. Um, Then, you know it's really difficult to say. You can't ask the engineers. They're all gone. You can't ask, you know, you can't go back in time and try to figure this out while it's happening. So maybe it made it sink faster. Maybe it didn't make a difference. Maybe had they opened it, that would have made them sink faster because then the water would have filled up because the water was coming in so fast to the ship. It was filling so rapidly. Yet two hours, but That's a really fast two hours for a ship as large as the Titanic to sink. Remember, guys, there were almost 2,000 souls aboard her. Actually, there were more than 2,000 souls aboard her. And the largest ship in the world sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean in two
1: hours. At 12.05 a.m., this is already April 15th. This is 25 minutes after the iceberg collision. It wasn't until then that Captain Smith gave the orders to get out the lifeboats. He told Chief Officer Wilde to go get the boats. He told First Officer Murdoch to get the passengers, but not to cause a panic. He told Sixth Officer Moody to get out the boat assignments, which frankly, in my opinion, didn't really matter because they were supposed to have that lifeboat drill, but they never did. They pushed it off because of winds. So they may have a piece of paper that has where everyone is supposed to go and what they're all supposed to do, but again, it doesn't matter because no one knows what they're doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was complete chaos in all regards. The stewards were told, you know, go get the passengers, tell them to Put on their lifeboats to so dress warmly, get them out on the deck, but don't cause a panic. Don't freak out. Don't freak out the passengers. And quite honestly, half of the stewards have no freaking clue what the fuck was going on. So passengers are being told to dress warmly. They don't want to. They don't want to go. They don't want to leave the warmth in their room. Why do I have to go? What's going on? You know,
1: it's astounding How many people couldn't put two and two together? I mean, in all honesty, you're being woken up at midnight, told to put on a life jacket, get warm, and get yourself outside. And they're just calm. Calm as all can be, as if someone is offering them tea in the afternoon. It's midnight. You're sleeping. You're in your freaking pajamas. Get out of bed and take this seriously. But they're not. They're, you know, some of them asked, What's going on? Others are going with the flow. But no one's really concerned. Like, did they think what? They were going to get to New York and give the Titanic two stars on Yelp? Like, oh my god, they woke me up at midnight for a boat drill.
0: No, that's not actually what's going on. If I'm on vacation and someone comes into my room, knocks on the door, it's midnight. I'm in, I'm sleeping. All right, it's the middle of the night. I'm in my pajamas. Someone from the hotel knocks on my door. My first assumption is something is on fire because they shouldn't be at my door at midnight. That should have been the same exact situation. I get it that the first class passengers aren't seeing the water, so the third class passengers already know what's up. The second class, mm, there were some feelings of... Concern. Yeah, that something is wrong. First class was like, on cloud nine, I don't know what the hell was going through their heads. Not much, apparently. So some of them dressed warmly. Some of them went out there in their bathrobes. Oh, it's too loud. It's too noisy. It's too cold. It's too windy. It's too icy. All right. The only smart person on this ship that was a passenger in first class was Margaret Brown. She put on like eight layers, grabbed two life belts and went up on deck. Margaret Brown,
1: I love you. Right. Just to show you how smart she is. She took a figurine for good luck because she knew something was wrong. She took it seriously the moment they knocked on her door. Right, she wasn't messing around. She was a very serious lady. So, back to the officers. So, 4th Officer Boxhall had two jobs. His first job, wake up 2nd Officer Lightoller and 3rd Officer Pittman. The second job was to get the Titanic's exact location. So that that location could be taken to the wireless room to Phillips and Bride and they can just start calling out for help. Because frankly, saying, you know, calling for help without a location... Ain't gonna do jack shit. So there were two ways to get the exact position of the Titanic. There was the accurate way and the less accurate way. So the really accurate way took forever. It included charting stars and the position of the sun and comparing it to a previous location and lots and lots of math, which is really scary for me. And frankly, Boxhall didn't have the time. So the second way was pretty much estimation. It was taking different factors that they were aware of, and ballparking their location. And he did as best as he could because that was the faster way, and that's what he had to do.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, we would later find out that um, the position was wrong. He had the latitude right, but the longitude was off by 14 miles. He put the ship uh, more west than they actually were.
1: But even still, he ge- the location was good enough that people knew where they were. They were going to be in that area, and... Right, it was the best
0: he could do at the time, and honestly, it's not his fault. You can't blame him for that. Now, back in the wireless room, Phillips was just getting off a long shift. Bride actually wasn't supposed to relieve him until 2 a.m., but since Phillips had spent the whole day relaying those backed-up messages to Cape Race, you know, they'd had so much backlog. They had to fix the machine. There was a lot going on. So Bride decided to do something nice and relieve Phillips early. Now, around this time, Justice Phillips had actually gone back behind the curtain that they had in their room to relax. Captain Smith came into the room and said that the Titanic had struck an iceberg. He told them to get ready to send out a call for help, but not to do it until he specifically told them to. Now, a couple minutes later, Captain Smith returned with the coordinates from Officer Boxhall and told Phillips and Bride to send out the distress call. There were three letters used at the time for the International Call for Distress. That was CQD. Now, CQD actually stood for All Stations Distress. It also um, was known in slang as Come Quick Danger, but that wasn't the actual code for it. And then following CQD, there would be another three letters, MGY, which was the call signal for the Titanic. So they would send out CQD, MGY, Distress, Titanic.
1: As we mentioned earlier on the Californian, Cyril Evans, who was the wireless operator, had turned off the wireless at around 11:30 after getting reamed out by Jack Phillips for butting into one of his messages to Cape Race. Now, he was in no mood to talk after that. He shut it down, closed himself off. That was that. Now, Third Officer Gros, who had earlier spoken with Lord about a ship in the distance, he came down to the wireless shack. He liked to talk to Evans and seeing that Evans wasn't in a mood for it, just wanted an update. He asked, hey, are there any ships in the area? To which Evans said, just the Titanic. So wanting an update, he went over to the wireless machine. Now he liked learning about it. He liked learning how to use it. So he turned it on. He put on his headphones to see if there was any chatter in the airways. Now the thing with the Californian's wireless is that it had a magnetic detector that actually had to be wound up in order to hear the messages coming across. Groves forgot to do that, so after hearing nothing, he turned it off and put away the headphones at around 12.15 a.m., so
0: while this is happening on The Californian, Jack Phillips had actually sent out the first distress call just after 12.15 a.m. So had Groves been able to turn on the wireless, he might have been able to catch that call. The first ship to respond to Phillips's distress call was the North German Lloyd steamer Frankfurt. At 12.18, she sent a reply, okay, stand by," but she didn't give her position. Right after that, Call after call started rolling into the Titanic, from the Mount Temple, from the Allen Liner, Virginian, from the Russian Tramp, Burma. And more than that, the message started spreading from ship to ship. Cape Race got the message directly and sent it further inland. And by accident, by coincidence, I don't know, the department store Wanamakers in New York, there was a wireless on the roof. The wireless operator on top of Wanamaker's got the message, and he also passed it on. So all of this is happening. These signals are being sent out. Phillips is typing CQD, CQD. Now, 58 miles away, the Cunard liner Carpathia also gets the message.
1: It could have been by pure coincidence that Harold Cottam, the wireless operator on the Carpathia, overheard the message coming from Jack Phillips. Now, he had overheard chatter. He'd been listening to the Titanic chatter earlier on in the day. He wanted to check in with Jack Phillips, see how everything is. So he politely tapped out to him and asked, you know, can I cut in? To which Jack Phillips said, yeah, go ahead. And Harold on unassuming, starts with, good morning, old man. Do you know there are messages for you at Cape Race? What he heard next was the worst thing imaginable that could have come through the wireless. Jack Phillips, type through. CQD,
0: CQD, SOS, SOS, CQD, MGY. Come at once. We have struck a berg. It's a CQD, old man. Position
1: 41.46 north, 50.14 west. And that was all Cottom needed to hear for the dominoes to start falling. So Cottom, he ran as fast as he could to the bridge to tell First Officer Dean what he had just heard. Dean, without hesitation, then ran off with Cottom on his heels to barge into the captain's cabins. Now, Captain Arthur Rostron, he was a very proper captain. So you you have two people just barging into his room without knocking. And that was quite literally the first thing he thought, like, wow, why aren't you knocking? And then Officer Dean told him the news. And for one second, Rostron just took that information in, and that was all he needed. He immediately told them to turn the ship around, that they were going to help the Titanic. He mapped out a new course, gave it to the helmsman, and told Cottam to race down to the wireless and tell the Titanic that they are coming. Now, the fastest the Carpathia has ever gone is 14 knots, and that just wasn't Fast enough because that would mean that the Carpathia would reach the Titanic in four hours. That was not fast enough for Austrian, not by a long shot. So he ordered everyone up. He turned off all the heat and the hot water to all the accommodations to make sure that that steam was pointed to the engines that they were going as fast as they possibly could. So any
0: work that didn't have anything to do with turning the ship around and heading to the Titanic was to stop. All officers, all stewards, all stokers, every single crew member was to be out of bed and at work. They swung out all the lifeboats. They got rigging ready to pull people out of the lifeboats, out of the ocean if need be. Three surgeons who were on the ship were ordered to the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd class dining saloons to get ready to receive passengers. Now remember, we're four hours away at this point from the Titanic. But Captain Rostron is already thinking of these poor people. That are going to experience this horrible, horrible tragedy and are going to need medical care, are going to need food, and are going to need accommodations. Any extra space available on the ship was for Titanic passengers. Crew was to give up their living quarters for Titanic passengers. They even asked some of the passengers later on if they could move rooms or room with someone else for the time being so Titanic passengers could rest and recuperate and
1: process. The tragedy now, with all these orders going out, the last thing Roshan wanted was to start a panic on his own ship, so he ordered that the passengers be kept out of the loop. okay he needed the passengers calm in their rooms, the heck out of the way out of with everything going on and so that's ha- what happened. His crew worked efficiently and they did everything that they were supposed to. He gave his marching orders, and they hopped too. Now in addition to everything that's going on inside the ship as they are now heading towards the Titanic, Roshan also placed extra lookouts all throughout the ship because they are going to be full steam ahead. They were going to be going into an ice field and the last thing that needed to happen was for the Carpathia to also hit an iceberg. He wanted to make sure that there was no way that they would hit ice and if they did come close that there was someone there to warn them away from that.
0: So at 12:30 Phillips received the response from Carpathia that they had, were coming hard. The ship had been turned about and was steaming towards the Titanic. Now, at 1234, the Frankfurt chimed in again, stating that she was 150 miles away. Philip asked the ship if they were coming. Frankfurt asks, you know, what's wrong with you? What's going on? Phillips says, tell your captain to come to our help. We are on the ice. At this time, Captain Smith had popped back into the wireless shack and was listening to the chatter. The Olympic also made contact with Phillips, and remember, the Olympic is the Titanic's sister ship, but she was 500 miles away, no matter how powerful her engines, no matter how fast, no matter how big, no matter how strong, no matter how many passengers she could take on, she was too far away. As her sister ship, Phillips kept in contact with her while still reaching out to ships that were much closer for assistance. Captain Smith then asked him, you know, what call are you sending out? And Phillips told him, CQD. Harold Bride then suggested that they send out the call SOS. And he jokingly said, might be your last time to do it. To which Phillips laughed. I guess you got to find humor in the small moments. In the tragic moments. So at 1245, Phillips sent out the first SOS call from the Titanic. Now, SOS had been used before, once in 1909 by the Cunard liner SS Slavonia. SOS had actually come into being in 1908. It doesn't mean save our souls. It doesn't mean save our ship. It's just a lot easier to type out in Morse code than CQD. So while the Slavonia was the first ship to send out SOS, the Titanic was the second.
1: So while Jack Phillips was calling for help, the third-class passengers had already realized that something was seriously wrong. So they grabbed all their belongings, everything that could fit in their arms, and they were trying to find a way up to the top deck. However, they did not have it as easy as first and second class because they had a direct exit onto the top deck where the lifeboats were being loaded. Now, first and second class, more so first than second, were a little bit more mm, la-dee-da about the, the news of the Titanic hitting an iceberg. And that may have been because they picked up on the crew as the crew had been ordered not to cause panic amongst the passengers, or it could be because they were a little bit further removed from the collision. Who knows? We don't know. But Thomas Andrews, the builder, was one of the people who was actually urging everyone to put on their life jackets, and anyone he would pass, he'd like, put it on, put it on, you gotta put it on. Now, while Smith's orders were not to cause panic, there were some stewards in the second class that were a little bit more excitable in their way of waking everybody up. They started running down corridors, banging on doors, telling them to wake up, wake up, put on warm clothes, get outside, go to the lifeboats, go, 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 like in a flash. And one of the passengers whose door was knocked on was Madeline Mellinger, who, you know, by the time she got to the door to see what all this yelling is about, the guy was already gone. That's how fast they were going. Now, Madeline had to wake up her mother, who was pretty much completely deaf at this point. And had Madeline not been there, it's very likely that she would have had, like, her mother would have passed away as she did not hear the knocking. So with her mother awake, they went up to the top deck and were loaded into lifeboat number 14.
0: So as Renee mentioned earlier, Captain Smith didn't order the lifeboats uncovered until 12.05 a.m. 12.15, Jack Phillips sent his first distress call. At 12.25 in the morning, the first lifeboat started filling up. Okay, this is a huge time gap. From 11.40, we hit the iceberg. 12.05, the lifeboats are uncovered. 12.15, distress goes out. 12.25, the lifeboats start getting loaded. This is absolutely insane. Third class passengers are still below decks trying to figure out how the hell they get up to the top. Second class passengers are kind of getting the fact that something is wrong, so they're starting to make their way up, actually dressed warmly. First class thinks they're still on a lovely sunset cruise. Matters weren't helped much when the band came out, okay? William Hartley and his band started playing ragtime music in the first class lounge. Eventually they moved to the Grand Staircase. Um, you know, this is all very confusing for people. But finally, up on deck, lifeboats uncovered, starting to load. People started realizing that this is not a drill. This is not a fun time. Something is going on. We're in danger. They went back to their cabins, dressed warmly, came back. Some of the wealthy passengers actually went down to the purser's office to get their money and belongings back. uh, Because they had finally come to the realization that there was something wrong with the ship. Anyway. Fifth Officer Lowe was actually late to the party because no one had thought to wake him up. He was still asleep. He was not on duty. When he woke up, looked out his window, and saw that there was this frenzy going on up on deck, he immediately got dressed and ran out there to lend a hand. Now, the lifeboat capacity was for 1,178 people. There were 16 lifeboats and four collapsibles, A, B, C, and D, all in hard-to-reach places. And the total souls on board were 2,207. That is a huge discrepancy. Now, when they actually started filling the lifeboats, the rule was women and children first. I don't know about you, but when I think women and children first, my next thought is, you know, women and children first, then men can board the lifeboats. Second Officer Lightoller took this literally to the point of women and children only. There was an 11-year-old boy by the name of Willie Coots who he would not let in a lifeboat because he said the hat he was wearing made him look way older than he was. Young Billy Carter only made it onto the lifeboat because his mother put a hat on him so that he looked like a girl. In addition to these young boys, Lightoller also refused John Jacob Astor access to the lifeboat. Now, there were other crew members who were allowing men onto the lifeboats if there weren't any women and children around.
1: So, one of the officers that was a lot more lenient was First Officer Murdoch, who obviously is, you know, one rank above Light Toller. He was going with the idea of women and children first, then everybody else. So, he was filling up lifeboat number seven, and... When he got all the women and children in his area, he was looking around like, who the heck else can I put in this boat? Because it wasn't anywhere near full. He was having trouble. He called out for more ladies. When no one came running saying, hey, I'm a lady. I need a boat. He then allowed men to get in. One of which was the French sculptor Paul Chevret and his friends who played cards with him who were also French.
0: Plus, there was 24-year-old Margaret Hayes. Um, She had her little Pomeranian on board with her and refused to get into the lifeboat without him. So, naturally, the Pomeranian went with her.
1: And we completely understand, because we would 100% also take our Pomeranians. 100%.
0: I'd fight those officers if they didn't let me take my dogs. That's all I'm
1: saying. Look, we'd have our own boat, let's be honest. All right, so Lifeboat 7 was the first lifeboat that actually... Descended, and that wasn't until twelve forty five so that is twenty minutes after the lifeboat started getting loaded. like things are moving pretty slow, all right, so Murdoch is on the starboard side, and because he was more lenient with who can get in, things were moving a little bit more quickly. however, it wasn't fast enough for President Ismay. he was running up and down the deck, telling people like you know hurry it up, hurry it up, like get in, lower away. To the point that third officer Pittman kind of looked at him and was like, the heck? He actually was like, dude, I'm awaiting the commander's orders. Like, shove off. Afterwards, Pittman kind of realized, oh, crap. Was that who I think it was? And, you know, he went over to Captain Smith. He took the time, guys, to go over to Captain Smith and say, hey, this just happened. What do I do? And Captain Smith was like, do it. Like, keep working. And so Pittman wanted. Went back and was like, okay, cool, ladies, in the boats. So
0: then Ismay went over to, he saw a group standing around, and he went over to them and was like, guys, you have to get into the lifeboats. And one of the women was like, well, uh, what about the men? Can the men come? And Ismay was like, oh, uh, yeah, of course, of course, everyone get into the lifeboats. Actually, what he really said was, of course, madam, every one of you. And one of those men was Carl Baer, the tennis player. In another turn of events, Dr. Henry Fraunthal, um helped his wife Clara into the lifeboat, but since it was full, he stood back with his brother Isaac. Now, he and Clara had been married in Nice two weeks prior to this event.
1: All right, guys, so when we say full, we don't actually mean full. You can't see it, but we're doing air quotes. Adrian is vigorously doing air quotes. And why I talked about myself in the third person, I can't explain that. We said earlier that the lifeboats had a capacity of 65. Number five went down with 40 people in it. That is what they considered full. Now, Pittman had been loading lifeboat number five. And when it had been filled, Murdoch came over and said, you get in there, go down with it. Cool. So now it had like 41 people. Still way off the mark. All right. So then the next one is lifeboat number three. So that lifeboat was lowered at 1255 with like, just hold on guys. Like, just hold on to your hats. Make sure you're like sitting down because this number is going to shock you. Overcapacity. It was overcapacity. Oh my God. Totally overcapacity with 32 fucking passengers. 32. Three, two. And 17 of them were men. So many more people could have been fit on that boat. But you know what? Fine. I'm not going to rant about it.
0: Right now. I'll totally do it later. Now, here's where we say goodbye to some of our passengers. Archie Butte apparently was seen standing nearby. Farewell, Archie Butte. We do not see you again. President Charles Hayes of the railroad, we're going to say goodbye to you here as well. He put his wife and daughter on the lifeboat. And told them that he would see them tomorrow, that he, they'll just wait right there. That was the last time his daughter Orion saw him
1: or her husband. However, some good news the Spedin family and their maid Daisy were all on the lifeboats. So at least I guess they didn't have to say goodbye to anybody. While all the officers are doing all these nice loading things with the boats that aren't completely full, we have. Someone who's quite forgotten. The forgotten quartermaster. It's quite sad. Okay, so we have quartermaster George Thomas Rowe, who is at the stern of the boat, doing his watch, I guess. Things are quiet. He might as well be in Guam. And all of a sudden, he just sees a lifeboat. And he's thinking, why the hell is there a lifeboat in the water? Because since the collision, no one's called him. No one's spoken any words to him he doesn't know what's going on so he calls down to the bridge they're like who the heck are you And he's like uh quartermaster Rowe? and they're like oh crap that guy you exist we forgot about that um make yourself useful and bring some rockets and so He brought with him 12 rockets.
0: Meanwhile, down in the boiler rooms, um, the lead fireman, Fred Barrett, uh, sent most of his stokers up to the top decks to their boat stations so they could help with um, loading and manning the lifeboats. He stayed down in the boiler rooms with a few other men to help the engineers with the pumps. Remember, the pumps are still going to get water off the ship. One of the men uh, by the name of Shepard actually fell down and broke his leg. Right after this, right after they laid him down and got him all comfortable, water rushed into the ship and the entire bulkhead between boiler rooms five and six collapsed. It just went completely down. Okay, everyone scrambled to safety as much as they could. Fred Barrett managed to get himself up the ladder. Unfortunately, Shepard was still laying there with his leg broken and another man by the name of Harvey Turned back to go get his friend. And that's the last we see of either one of them. Across the Atlantic, the Carpathia is coming fast. She is picking up speed. She's going far beyond whatever people thought capable of her. What her builders thought her capable of. And it's, you know, there's some argument as to how fast she actually went. We're not going to get into that. And we're just going to leave it at she was going between... Fifteen and a half and seventeen knots. She
1: was only built to go fourteen all right now, over on the Californian at around midnight, Third Officer groves was replaced by Second Officer Stone. Now, Lord hadn't deigned any of his officers with his presence on the bridge since that initial encounter when they first spotted a ship in the distance. so now Lord is talking to Stone he keeps. You know, pointing out how they're so surrounded with ice. There's ice everywhere. Oh my gosh, ice, ice, ice. Duh, dude, that's why he stopped for the night. So Stone sees all the lights on the ship and is like, wow, this is, this ship is, you know, probably only like five or six miles away. That's super close. And Lord is being his jackass self and saying, oh my god, no, I don't notice her changing positions. There's nothing unusual going on at all. And so he leaves the bridge with instructions to let him know if there's any changes at the boat. Drifts closer, if they notice any positions, not that he would care. But that's another thing altogether. So during his shift, Third Officer Groves had tried to signal the ship with more slam. He was not successful, and apprentice officer James Gibson had tried also. Again, there was no response. He's on shift, he's doing his thing, and around 12:40, Captain Lord calls up from the chart room and asks, Hey Stone, are there any changes? Stone says, nah, man, no changes. So Lord, you know, because being in the chart room is so exhausting, says, cool, I'm going to take a nap. Now, back on the
0: Titanic, 4th Officer Boxhall has uh, started signaling with Morse Lamp to the ship he saw in the distance through his binoculars. And he's signaling with the Morse Lamp. And, oh, wait, did I get a response? Mm, no. Okay, doesn't look like it. So he's doing that. Um, While Quartermaster Rowe, you know, the Forgotten Quartermaster, starts sending up flares. At 1245, the first distress rocket is sent into the air. Now, these distress rockets were designed to uh, go up as high as 800 feet. Once they reached that point, uh, the rocket would explode in a shower of white stars. And as you can imagine, it was really, really loud.
1: All right, now back to the Californian. At the same time, 12.45 a.m., Stone notices these rockets going up. Now, they are going up in five-minute intervals. And it's very important to note that they are white rockets being fired in five-minute intervals. Now, we will explain why a little bit later. However, Stone, he counted them. One, two, three, four, five. So when it came to the loading of the lifeboats,
0: um, it differed. there were some different scenarios. So some of the women went in, you know, more than happy to get into a lifeboat. Uh, Some of them had to be convinced to get into the lifeboat by their significant others, by officers. Or some of them were even forced to get into the lifeboats. At one point, when it got so desperate, there were some women that were literally just tossed into lifeboats so that their lives could be saved. Now, in a different situation, we have the Strausses. And we met Isidore and Ida in episode two. Remember, he's the co-owner of Macy's. They were on their way back from a lovely holiday. Ida refused to go into the boat without her husband. So we have a quote here where she looked at him and said, I've always stayed with my husband, so why should I leave him now? At one point, it did look like she was going to get into the boat. She, you know, handed some of her jewelry off and then decided last minute, no, no. No, there's no way that she's getting off of the Titanic without her husband. So right before, you know, she could get into the lifeboat number eight, last minute she turns to him and she says, we have been living together for many years. Where you go, I go. And then they walked off together, you know, hand in hand, arm in arm, and sat down on a couple of deck chairs. Now, if you've seen the Titanic film by James Cameron, There's this elderly couple laying in the bed together as the water is gushing into their
1: room. This is Isidore and Ida Strauss. All right, so it is important to note that before Isidore and Ida walked off hand in hand to go sit somewhere on one of the chairs, Hugh Wollner did say, you know, that he's sure that no one would really object to someone of Isidore's standing age, what have you. Getting into the boat, and Isidore's response was, I will not go before the other men. That is heartbreaking and so freaking honorable.
0: Yeah, and it was at that point where, you know, he and his wife turned and walked off, and this is the last time that we see the Strausses. While the loading of the lifeboats is happening, Thomas Andrews was actually on deck at this point, and he was going around trying to convince you know women to get into the boats as quickly as and efficiently as possible he wanted as many people in those lifeboats as possible in order to save as many lives as possible captain smith was also on the deck at this point assisting with the loading of the lifeboats he was actually helping with lifeboat 8 at this moment and he called out for any more women any more women none came forward so he was like all right this is it we're going to lower the boat he told thomas jones who was in charge of the lifeboat to row the lifeboat out to that ship they saw in the distance. Remember, Thomas Rowe and 4th Officer Boxhall are off somewhere on the ship, sending off rockets and still trying to send a signal by Morse Lamp to the Californian. They don't know it's the Californian at this point. All they know is there is a ship out there. We think so. We are going to try to offload passengers on this ship in the distance, and then Thomas Jones was supposed to row back, pick up more passengers on the Titanic, and then row back to this ship in the distance boat 8
1: which is now going down was filled with 22 women and 3 crewmen. Now, Officer Lightoller is thrilled. I mean really thrilled that the boats, the lifeboats aren't being filled to capacity because he in honest to God, he wasn't sure that the davits would actually hold. So, he, his thinking was pretty much load it with, you know, 20, 30 passengers, whatever, lower the boat, and then that they would row back to the gangways, which were doors that were lower down, and fill from there while the pass- like the boat is already on the water, and then row away. How many ships do you think, or boats, do you think actually came back? Zero. So, with this thinking in mind, Light Toller then sent some of the crewmen to go down, open those doors, be ready. Those men were never seen or heard from again. They had the order, and that was that.
0: Yeah, what he didn't know at this point was that the ship was already filling with water to the point where those gangways couldn't be accessed. So whatever happened, those men very likely ended up drowning.
1: You know, everything's happening so very quickly, and yet so slowly, so calmly, that Lightoller kind of felt like he was just standing around doing nothing. That is, until Chief Officer Wilde came around and was like, Hey, we need guns. Take us to the guns. So Lightoller does. Wild shoved a gun into Lightoller's hands, and he went back to loading the boats. Just to keep you up to date, so lifeboat number six went down at 12.55, Lifeboat number three at 1 a.m. and number eight at 1:10.
0: Okay, so while these lifeboats are being filled, you know, you have to keep track also of where the water levels are. At least that was light toller's thinking. And he was actually standing near an emergency staircase. So every now and then he would look over to this emergency staircase, which was already filling with water. And he would gauge the water level based on how many more stairs were covered by water. So, at this point, things are starting to devolve into chaos little by little. Part of this was brought on by the fact that all of the most able seamen on the Titanic were already off doing something else. So, some of them were in the lifeboats that were already out on the water. Some of them were in other parts of the ship doing something else, like Roe and Buxhall. And the others were helping to load the lifeboats, like Light Toller and Murdoch. So, as a result, one of the lifeboats actually went down with only one seaman on board. And this was number six. So as the lifeboat is being lowered, one of the women had the sense to notice that, wait, we've only got one seaman down here. How the hell are we going to row this boat? So Toller kind of turned around and started polling the group. Anybody a seaman? Are there any seamen in the
1: house? Who's a seaman? And one of the first class passengers, Major Arthur Godfrey Puchin, which by the way, he has like the best title ever, He was the vice commodore of the Royal Canadian Yacht Club.
0: Yeah, so as a result of that, he's like, yes, I am, I have a yacht. Which isn't the same thing, but you know what, Light Toller wasn't going to be picky. And he was like, that's fine. You need to get down to the lifeboat, because we're not bringing it back up here. If you can get back down to that lifeboat, it's golden, it's all yours.
1: So what this man, who was almost 53, did, he grabbed a hold of one of the ropes that the lifeboat was being lowered on and, is ma- and made his way down it into the boat. Yeah, so then
0: lifeboat six went down with one seaman and Major Arthur.
1: All right, and now on the other side, we have Murdoch and the infamous lifeboat number one. So there were five passengers, six stokers, and then there was Lookout Simmons. All in all, that was 12 people in a boat that could hold 40. So Murdoch ordered the lifeboat to go down and said, come back when we call you. We'll see if that actually happens.
0: It's important to note that at this point, the, there was a gap that was being created on the port side. So when the Titanic was going down by her bow, she wasn't just going straight down. She had a lean to the starboard side, to the right-hand side of the ship. So on the left-hand side, there was a gap forming between the lifeboats and the ship. Where at this point, you would basically have to start jumping from the Titanic's deck into the lifeboat in order to make it in there safely.
1: Now, it's also important to note that as it was getting later, Murdoch started ordering more and more people into the lifeboats. He was no longer concerned with, hey, go down there, then come back. It was just get in the boat. I don't care what the capacity is. Get in here now and go.
0: So also at this point, some of the third class passengers had made it to the top deck Now, what makes it so difficult is that a lot of them didn't speak English or understand it very well. And those that did, didn't want to be separated from their loved ones. So this is the reason why entire family units didn't survive this disaster. They didn't want to be separated from one another. Mothers from their children, fathers from wives, so on and so forth. It was kind of this, you know, if we're not going to live together, then we'll do the opposite and die together. I don't know if that was the thought process
1: necessarily, but that's the result. So a lot of the stewards in third class were busy trying to get the passengers into their life jackets and they weren't having any luck. And a big part of that was the language barrier. These many of these people didn't speak English. They didn't understand what was going on. You have people speaking to them in a language they don't understand, probably showing them this life jacket and they're like, what the heck do you want for me? I don't understand. So when the stewards got the order to send up the women and children, there was really no way for them to get up there on their own. They were 100% going to get lost because these are corridors and decks that they are not familiar with. So one of the stewards, John Edward Hart, took it upon himself to get together some groups and take like lead them up there. And this wasn't like a five minute trip, like, hey guys, I'll take you up, I'll be back in five minutes, and I'll take up another group. No. Between 12.30 and one twenty, he was only able to bring two groups up to the boat deck. There really was no more time for him to go back for another group, and Murdoch was like, hey, get in this boat and go.
0: So that was number 15 that the steward got into, and the other boat that passengers were able to get into was number 8.
1: Many of the staircases that the third-class passengers were waiting at were locked, The passengers wouldn't be able to get up to the top deck without a steward or a crew member or whoever unlocking the gate for them. And in other parts of the ship where the barrier was down, you still have third class passengers just wandering around with absolutely no direction because, again, they're not familiar with these corridors. They are so confused. It's pretty much a maze and they have absolutely no idea how to get to the top. So there was a passenger in third class by the name of Jim Farrell. An Irishman. Who was at one of these locked gates. And when there was a steward walking by, he said exactly this. Great God, man. Open the gate and let the girls through. And the steward, he did. I mean, I would too after getting yelled at like that. Actually, fuck that. I would open the door regardless. Imagine being down there.
0: It's already been... Two hours, just about since the Titanic hit the iceberg. So that's two hours that they've actually been aware that the ship is sinking because the water was coming into third class long before first and second class were aware of anything wrong with the ship. So at this point, people are starting to lose hope. They don't know how to get to the top. The barriers are locked regardless, so they can't get to the top, even if they do have a map in their head. Some people just went back to their cabins and waited. Others decided to pray. And I don't know if they were praying, you know, for salvation. I don't know if they were praying because they knew the end was coming. Whatever the reason, they turned to prayer. By the time third class passengers got up to the top deck, almost all the boats were gone at this point.
1: Over on the Californian, they've continued morsing this entire time, and they're not seeing the Titanic's response, so they're thinking, this is coming to absolutely nothing. So Stone at this time is saying, hey, I need to tell Lord about these these rockets. So he calls down. Lord asks, are the company signals? Stone says he doesn't know, but they're white. They're firing in intervals. Lord says, all right, let me know if there's anything else. And he went back to sleep.
0: So at this point in our story, most of the lifeboats are now gone. Those on the water are rowing away from the Titanic. Some of the boats are trying to make their way to the ship in the distance, but there are still so many people left on board. It's at this point where stewardess Violet Jessup, she's the one who survived the sinking of the Britannic and the Olympic, gets into a lifeboat and her life is saved. And this is because... First Officer Murdoch wanted her to serve as an example for other third-class passengers standing on the deck to show them that, yes, it's okay to get in the lifeboat. It's perfectly safe. Look, one of the stewardesses that you've seen here before is in this boat. She's ready to go. In addition, Chief Baker Charles Jockin was super busy this night. He was not baking. He was bringing biscuits and water to the lifeboat so that people had something to eat and drink when they were out on the water. And when he was done doing this or he decided to switch gears, he gathered his kitchen staff together, went on down to third class deck and started trying to convince people to make their way to the top deck so that they could get in a lifeboat.
1: And he kind of had to change tactics and get a little bit more aggressive with his method. So he started taking the children away from the mothers and running up the stairs with them because he knew that the mothers would chase after them to get their kids back. And once he got the children and the mothers up to the top deck, he started throwing those kids into lifeboats and pushing the mothers in right after them. So
0: the best tactic to use? Probably not. Was it effective? 100%. So now it's 115 And Phillips is still tap, tap, tapping away at that wireless. He is trying to get news from any ships that are close, that they are on their way, that they're coming to Titanic's rescue. But so far, the Carpathia is the closest ship. And as we know, she is already full steam ahead, straight at the Titanic. So at 1.25, the Olympic chimes in and she says, you know, are you coming towards us? Because we're coming towards you. Are you coming towards us? And Phillips is like, no, we're not coming towards you. We're, we're putting people in lifeboats. We're sinking. This is not, we can't move. We're not going anywhere. The Frankfurt comes in again, you know, tries to find out what's going on. Any ships coming to your rescue? Phillips ignores the wireless operator. He comes through again. Phillips isn't having none of it. He is frustrated and he is trying to get help. The Frankfurt is not that help. And he tells him to stand by and shut up. What he actually tapped out was, you fool. Stand by and keep out. Every now and then, Captain Smith would pop in, see if there was any news, see if, you know, maybe a closer ship was on their way, um, and also to update Phillips and Bride about the status of the ship, that, you know, power is starting to fade, you know, just so that they're aware.
1: So while Phillips is tapping everything out, Bride is strapping a life jacket onto Phillips, putting a coat on him. And then he did relieve Phillips for a few minutes so that Phillips could run up and see what's going on. And it was then that Phillips really noticed that the Titanic doesn't have more than a few minutes left before she's completely under.
0: Yeah, so at one forty-five, he reaches back out to the Carpathia and he says, Come as quickly as possible, old
1: man. Engine room filled up to the boilers. And over to the Californian for a hot second. So we have Stone and Gibson on the deck, watching the Titanic in the distance, and Stone remarks, you know, the ship isn't going to be firing rockets for absolutely no reason, and Gibson agreed, and he said, hey, there's, there's probably something seriously wrong with this ship. However, they both stayed silent, so Gibson was only an apprentice officer, so he had absolutely zero authority on the ship, and Stone, who was a ranked officer, he wasn't Confident at all. Neither of them wanted to incur the wrath of Lord by bringing any more news to him or disagreeing with him.
0: As all of this is going on, the ship keeps sinking. Now we're at the point where it's not devolving into chaos. It is chaos. This is a tragic and heartbreaking scene, and I think James Cameron did an amazing job on the film because he portrayed it accurately. Women are being ripped away from their husbands, being torn straight out of their arms as they're saying goodbye to be, you know, escorted or flung into lifeboats. Children are crying. Fathers are putting on a brave face and saying goodbye to their children and and lying, flat out lying that, you know, things are going to be okay. You know, I'll, I'll see you later. It'll be fine. But they know, you. they have to know at this point that it's not going to be okay and the likelihood of them surviving is going to be extremely slim to very much none. Here again we meet third class passenger Daniel Buckley. He and a couple of other men at uh, this point were desperate to get off the ship so they got into a lifeboat, they were huddling at the bottom, and fifth officer Lowe was having none of it. He dragged them out of there, reamed them out blistered their ears you know saying that they were all nothing but a bunch of cowards daniel buckley actually remained in there and someone had tossed a shawl over him so he ended up looking more like a woman than a man he says that it was mrs madeline astor if it was we don't know um it very likely wasn't considering i believe she was in another part of the ship at this point but whoever it was a woman threw a shawl over him to save him from being pulled out of the boat and here. Again, complete chaos. Men are now rushing at officers, trying to rush into the boats because the fight or flight response kicks in. You want to save yourself. You want to get to safety. I can't fully blame them for that because no one wants to die. So when the men rushed the boat, uh, one of the seamen actually beat them back with one of the lifeboat's tillers. And um, 5th Officer Lowe pulled his gun on the men, and he fired three shots off the side of the lifeboat as it was being lowered into the water. Then for number 15, Murdoch also, he had to keep back these men who were trying to rush into the boat, and he barely managed to do that. So boat number 14 hit the water, then number 12, then number 9. In numbers 9 and 12, there were only 40 people on board those lifeboats. That's 40 people when there's a capacity for 65. So around this time, 10 of the 20 lifeboats That's 10 of the 16 regular lifeboats. Then we have the four collapsibles are now out on the water. Total number of people saved from the ship was 330. All while this is happening, ragtime music is still playing from the ship. The people out in the lifeboats can hear it. The people on the Titanic can also hear it, though I'm not entirely sure they're paying attention to it. Whereas the people in the lifeboats had nothing to do but listen to people screaming and crying and the ragtime music as the backdrop for that and watching,
1: you know, as the ship is sinking, as the lights start flickering. So now we're moving on over to lifeboat six, which has already gone into the water. So this is the one with quartermaster Hitchens and major Arthur Puchin. So Hitchens was steering and the major was like, hey, how about you let one of the women steer and you help out with the, like, with rowing? And Hitchens wasn't having any of that. He yelled at him and said, hey, I'm in charge of this boat, just shut up and row. And at the same time, they could hear Captain Smith yelling for boat number six to come back so that they could get more of the passengers. Hitchens, lovely Hitchens. His exact words were, It's our lives now, not theirs. And so, lifeboat number six did not go back.
0: Okay, so Edith Rosenbaum is uh, out on the top deck, first class passenger, and, you know, some of the crewmen, President Ismay notices her, and he's like, woman, why are you still on this ship? So he gets her to a lifeboat, that's lifeboat 11, to get her into the boat. He wants as many women and children off the boat as possible. He honestly wants as many people off the boat as possible. So one of the sailors threw her toy pig into the boat. She had a toy pig that played music. Um, It was her good luck charm. It was something that was given to her by her mother um, after she had survived a car accident, the car accident that killed her fiancé. And she wasn't going anywhere without this toy pig. So the toy pig was thrown into the lifeboat. Two of its legs were broken, but it could still play music, so everything is okay with that. She managed to get into the lifeboat and get her toy pig back, and she was one of the last people who actually got into that lifeboat. So then lifeboat 11 was lowered, um, and then right after that, lifeboats number 13 and 15 started to be lowered, but they encountered a problem. Oh my god, worst thing that could possibly happen during this time.
1: Second class passenger Lawrence Beasley was in lifeboat 13 with Fred Barrett, a stoker who we mentioned earlier on in the episode. So, they were in Lifeboat 13 and it was lowering when Lifeboat 15 was actually lowering on top of them. And they couldn't, like, Lifeboat 15 couldn't hear them screaming to stop. Or rather, the officers who were handling the davits couldn't hear them. So, you have some of the men are pushing Lifeboat 15 away, like trying to get out from under it, as some of the other men are cutting the ropes. Because as soon as they cut the ropes, Lifeboat 15 splashed right down next to lifeboat 13.
0: The next lifeboat to be lowered down was lifeboat number two. When there weren't any more women to place in the boat, the boat started to be lowered down from the Titanic. Third class passenger Anton Kink said goodbye to his wife, to his daughter. His daughter was four years old and, you know, they're crying out for him He's standing there watching them being lowered away from him, and then he decides, you know what, he's going to take a chance. So he jumps from the deck down into the boat, he makes it, and you know their little family gets to survive the disaster together. Fourth Officer Boxhall was the one who was in charge of the lifeboat, and when it was finally lowered down, he was actually given orders to come around to the starboard side of the ship in order to pick up more passengers because they still had room for 15 more people. As they were making their way to the, sh- the side of the ship, he actually felt like the, there was suction that was coming from the Titanic because they were coming around the front where it was, you know, sinking. So he decided, you know, it's too risky and they ended up rowing away.
1: And as far as we know, this is the only lifeboat that came back to try and get more passengers. So after boat two was lowered away, they started turning their attention to the collapsibles. So they pulled out
0: collapsible C and D and fitted them into the davits where boats one and two had been located. Around this time, the last two distress rockets were fired
1: into the air. That was all they had left. At this time, people pretty much started, like, gang-rushing the collapsibles so, at this time, purser Herbert McElroy, he fired his gun twice, and then Murdoch also, while shouting everyone to just get away, get the hell out of the boats, fired his gun as well. So there's this myth that Murdoch shot himself in the head, and that's where this comes in. So there were two accounts later on by George Reems and Eugene Daly, who said that they saw Murdoch shoot one of the passengers and then shoot himself. However, when asked about it later on, Officer Lightoller said, yeah, no, that actually did not happen. That was not a thing.
0: Yeah, in reality, we actually don't know what happened to First Officer Murdoch. All we know is he didn't survive the sinking.
1: Hearing these gunshots, we have first class passengers, Hugh Wollner and Bjornstrom Stefansson, who ran over to help. They started pulling people out of the boats to make sure that any women and children nearby could be loaded. They also spent their time running around trying to get as many women and children into the boat, literally picking them up and putting them in the boats. At this time, William Carter and Bruce Ismay were wandering around trying to find more women to load into collapsible sea. So when they were unable to find them, they very calmly stepped over the railing and seated themselves into the collapsible. As there were... No more female passengers around. Collapsible C was lowered with 42 passengers, which was actually capacity. You know, way to wait until the very end to start doing that. So
0: as mentioned earlier, Toller kept an eye on that emergency staircase near to where he was standing, and he looked over and saw that now the water had not only reached C deck, but it was starting to rapidly fill the staircase. Around 140... Boat number four was ready to be loaded. There were only two lifeboats still left in addition to the collapsibles, and that was boat four and boat ten. And what actually happened was boat four was, he started getting boat four ready an hour prior to this because he thought, you know, they'll fill boat four from the A-deck, but didn't account for the fact that A-deck was enclosed with those windows that were meant to provide this nice sheltered view of the ocean for first-class passengers. So they spent that hour trying to get those windows open. So finally they did. The boat was lowered back down. And Lightoller placed himself half on the windowsill, half in the boat. And he was helping women and children into the boats while men were helping them from the Titanic side. Now, here's where we say goodbye to John Jacob Astor. He helped his wife into the lifeboat. And he said, you know, to Light Toller, that she's pregnant. Can I accompany her into the boat? And Light Toller said, no, he cannot. Now, I imagine he said this with a heavy heart because Light Toller is not an evil man. He, you know, especially his wife is pregnant, that's understandable that he'd want to go with her. But unfortunately, he stuck to the women and children only rule.
1: And this is also where we say goodbye to Arthur Ryerson. So, first of all, after noticing that. The maid that accompanied him and his family didn't have a life jacket. He took his off, and he didn't just give it to her. He actually buckled her in to make sure that she was 100% solid on that front. When his wife was walking up with their son Jack, Lightoller originally said, No, I'm sorry, the boy can't go. However, Arthur stepped forward and said, word for word, Of course that boy goes with his mother. He is only 13. Lightoller let them through, mumbling, no more boys. And hearing that, Lucille Carter took her hat, placed it on her son, and walked right into the boat. And at 155, lifeboat number four was lowered into the water. And this was just 15 feet. Whereas before, to be lowered, it was 60 that's how much water the Titanic at that point had already taken on. So, the last of the
0: lifeboats was Lifeboat 10. And as it's being loaded, there are several men stepping forward and saying goodbye to their families. And you have to realize at this point, if they didn't know it before, they definitely know it now. They're saying goodbye for the last time. Some of the women may not realize it, but the men definitely do. So, Mark Fortune stepped forward with his son, Charles, who was only 19. They said goodbye to marry the mother and wife, and the three daughters. In addition to this, Bertram Dean said goodbye to his wife and son and daughter. Remember, young Milvina, who was the oldest surviving Titanic passenger because she was the youngest on board at the time. At the last moment, one final woman decided that she was going to make the jump and try to get into the lifeboat. Unfortunately, she missed, but she was grabbed, they did pull her back onto the Titanic. Unfortunately, we don't know if she managed to get into another lifeboat, because at this point, all the lifeboats are gone. All that's left are collapsible D, collapsible A, and collapsible B.
1: However, there was one more jumper, and that was Japanese civil servant Masabumi Hasono. You know, he wrestled with it. He, If he jumped for the lifeboat, would that bring dishonor on his family? And he, He didn't want that. However, he was thinking of his family and how much he loved them and that he needed to survive for them. So he ran, he jumped, and he did land in lifeboat 10, which at that point had 57 people on it, which was almost at capacity, was eight passengers short of capacity.
0: So now with almost all the lifeboats gone, people are starting to throw things over the side of the ship, deck chairs, you know, tables whatever they can use as a raft some people are starting to jump into the water already father thomas biles could be seen giving final prayers
1: collapsibles a and b were in a absolutely fucking ridiculous place so we will touch on those two a little bit later however collapsible d was the last lifeboat that was ready to go and knowing this light toller And his crew formed a circle around the lifeboat. They locked arms to make sure that only women and children could get through. Knowing spots were limited, Michel Nevertiel he brought forth his two sons, and Colonel Gracie escorted Miss John Murray Brown and Miss Edith Evans to the lifeboat to get on. So to put it into perspective, there were nearly 200 women and children still on the Titanic at this time. And there were only 47 seats on collapsible D. So
0: another uh, woman that was hurried to collapsible D was Renee Harris. This is around 2 a.m. She still has not gotten on a lifeboat. First class passenger. She refused, like Ida Strauss, to leave her husband. But Captain Smith convinced her, you know, get on the boat. It'll be fine. You'll see him later. Man was lying through his teeth. But he did what... Harry couldn't, because all this time, Harry was trying to convince her to get on a lifeboat. He wanted his wife to live the rest of her life, even if it was without him. So when the captain lied, he said that, you know, without the women, the men had a better chance of surviving because they didn't have to worry about the little ladies. So Renee was carried through, put in a boat, with a broken arm, uh, which Harry was very concerned about. So when the boat was being lowered away, Harry called down to her, goodbye, sweetheart, which Makes me want to burst into hysterics. So she also saw Frank Millett standing nearby, as did Jane Hoyt, who was also helped into Collapsible D. She said goodbye to her husband, Frederick. And then Jane turned to Frank and asked him if he had any messages to pass over. And he said, give my love to Lily and to all my friends. At
1: 2 a.m., the gates that were keeping the third class passengers stuck in those stairwells were finally opened. So by the time they got up to where collapsible D was being loaded, the boat was already being lowered away. And when I said that there were nearly 200 women left on board, more than half of them were from, from third class. Collapsible D started being lowered at 2.05. So Mrs. Brown was able to get into the boat. However, the boat was ordered to lower before Edith Evans could get in. And as a result, she was one of only four women from first class who died in the sinking. So
0: Hugh Woolner and Bjornstrom Steffensen are standing there, you know, looking over the railing, watching this boat be lowered. And they figured, you know what? It's our last chat. Let's take it. And so they jumped over the railing. They managed to land in the boat. Now, Frederick Hoyt also decided he was going to go for it. So he also jumped over the railing, but he splashed into the water next to the boat. They did pull him into the lifeboat, and when they did, not realizing who it was, Jane Hoyt turned around and yelled, My God! That's my husband! In a different turn of events, boat four was making their way away from the ship. They were actually coming around the stern, and at this point, they saw the three giant propellers coming out of the water because the bow of the ship had already sunk so far beneath the Atlantic Ocean.
1: We want to take a moment to give a huge, huge shout out to the unsung heroes of the night, the engineers. Chief Engineer Joseph Bell and his crew worked until 2.10 in the morning down in the engine room, trying to ensure that the Titanic's lights stayed on for as long as possible. They quite literally worked until the last possible second. If
0: it weren't for them and the lights had gone out long before they did, forget chaos. It would have been, I I don't even know what the word is, but so many more people would have died. Officers wouldn't have been able to load the lifeboats properly. They wouldn't have been able to lower them properly. People would have been, you know, rushing boats, would have been falling off the ship because they have no clue where they're going. People could have been trampled in this madness. So they allowed the officers to get as many people off the ship. I don't want to say as possible because they definitely could have gotten more people off the ship, but it allowed them the time to actually load lower and man the lifeboats. In other events, there's this myth about Benjamin Guggenheim, first-class passenger Ben Guggenheim, where he and his valet, you know, heroically dressed in, you know, their most amazing clothing and We're standing there, stoic as all get out, and, you know, where Ben Guggenheim then says, we have dressed in our best and are ready to go down as gentlemen. We don't know if this actually happened. It may have, it may not have. There's not really an account that corroborates that it did happen. There's a steward who says it did, but that was way before um, passengers knew that the ship was sinking.
1: So there's another myth that is about Thomas Andrews. So he's often depicted in many of the Titanic films as, you know, at the very end, standing there in the dining saloon, the smoking room, what have you, in front of the fireplace. And we have an account from steward John Stewart that says, yeah, this is what happened. However, we don't know if, if it's true or he was there and he later moved out onto the decks because there are other accounts that say that, you know, Thomas Andrews was seen on the bridge later on. He may have been in the dining room or smoking room, what have you, and just moved out later on. To try and keep
0: some semblance of calm, the band kept playing. They played until the water was coming over their knees. None of the band members survived. There's some debate about the final song that was played. Some accounts say that it was Abide With Me, which was a hymn. Others say that it was Autumn, which was a popular waltz at the time.
1: However, there is no proof that Nearer My God to Thee was ever played. Then we have Jack Thayer,
0: who was 17 years old, and his friend Milton Long. They were wandering around the deck. He had already thought that his mother and father had left on a lifeboat. His mother did on lifeboat four. His father, however, was on the other side of the deck.
1: In the wireless room, Phillips and Bride were still working. At 2.05, Captain Smith came into the room and said, Men, you have done your full duty. You can do no more. Abandon your cabin. Now it's every man for himself. Phillips looked at him and went back to work. And Captain Smith repeated himself. And still, Phillips worked. He worked until the wireless went out. And did not leave a second before.
0: Now, to show you how late this was, um, apparently the SS Virginian heard a really faint message
1: come through at 2.17 a.m. So as Phillips was working, Bride stepped away for a hot second to just grab some of his things. And when he came back, there was a stoker trying to get Phillips' life jacket off of him. You know, he punched him out. They wrestled themselves away. Harold Bride and Jack Phillips ran out of the wireless cabin into separate directions. And that is the last time that we will see Jack Phillips.
0: Renee will be stepping away for a moment with some tissues. Meanwhile, Captain Smith is now making his way across the deck or whatever is left of it, and he's insisting to all his crew... Every man for himself. It's every man for himself. Go. Save yourselves. Find any way that you can. Get off this ship. Get yourself safe. You need to go now. You, you know, drilling it. So some of the men started jumping overboard. Um, one of the greasers got really lucky. He jumped in to the ocean, but he actually made it to boat number four, as did
1: Stuart Cunningham. However, there was a trimmer, trimmer Hemming who was working on getting, untangling the collapsibles, collapsibles A and B. And Toller came over to him and he was like, what are you doing? Because Hemming was supposed to be on lifeboat number six, but he had decided to stay behind and keep helping.
0: Okay, so when we said earlier that the um, collapsibles A and B were causing trouble, that's because they were stored in really stupid places. Collapsibles A and B were on top of the officers' quarters. Okay, that's a difficult-to-reach place. The lines were tangled. They couldn't get them down. So Light Toller was trying to get collapsible B free. Harold Bride actually showed up and was helping with that. And this was on the port side. On the starboard side, they were trying to free collapsible A. So what they did with that
1: was they actually, you know, set up planks so that they could lower it that way, just kind of slide it down. It did not work. Instead, collapsible A came, like, crashing down.
0: Yeah, it broke the planks, and it actually
1: ended up upside down on the deck. And remember Trimmer Hemming, who was trying to get the collapsibles free? Well, when he noticed that there was going to be no way that collapsible B was get, like, that they were going to get it free, he decided to say, fuck it, and he jumped into the ocean.
0: Yeah, and collapsible B was also upside down, so neither of which is helpful at all. And as they're trying to free collapsible B, the deck actually dipped beneath the ocean. This is 2.15 a.m. Okay, it's 2.15. This is five minutes before she goes under. And they're still trying to free these collapsibles with still 1,500 souls on board. So as the ship started dipping under more, uh, water came onto the deck and actually washed both collapsible B and Harold Bride off the deck and out into the
1: Atlantic. Now... It's 2.15, let's say that one more time, and this is when Hartley, the bandmaster, you know, he signaled to his men to stop playing ragtime and start playing autumn, which, as we mentioned earlier, was a popular waltz at the time. So at some point, they managed to
0: overturn collapsible A, make it right side up. Some people got into it. Water came rushing onto the deck, filled half the boat with water, people are still in it, and it got washed out as well. So at this point, Toller took Captain Smith's every-man-for-themselves thing seriously, got onto the wheelhouse, and dived into the Atlantic.
1: So when he got his head above water, his initial reaction was to start swimming towards the crow's nest. However, he was like, uh, no, hold on, this is a bad idea. And he started swimming away from it. But then he got pulled
0: underwater and slammed against the ventilator. Now, eventually, he did get free because there was a rush of water that blew him off of that. And the moment his head got above water, he was pulled back under. When he came up again, he was actually near collapsible B. And as the bow of the boat was sinking further
1: underwater, the stern was rising higher. And at this time, Lightoller is seeing, you know, all the cables snapping And that first funnel comes crashing down into the water, crushing people. And it missed toller by like a hair's breadth.
0: So Jack Thayer saw the funnel come down after he had actually come up from being underwater. Because he and his friend had decided the time had come they were going to jump. His friend didn't survive because his friend slid down the hull. Jack Thayer jumped as far as
1: he could to clear himself from the ship, which saved his life. It's at this moment that a huge roar could be heard from the ship because all of the engines were tearing out of the floor and crashing down through the Titanic. So
0: Archibald Gracie... First class passenger managed to save himself by swimming out to the collapsible, collapsible B. Jack Thayer also made it to collapsible B. Men were already starting to pull themselves onto the collapsible. It was still upside down, but they were pulling themselves
1: on top of it to stand on it. Another huge roar could be heard from the ship as pretty much everything that wasn't bolted down, be it deck chairs, glassware, what have you, went tumbling down through the Titanic. Because of the slant of the ship,
0: so at this point, things are just moving so fast. The bow is sinking further. The stern is rising higher. People could no longer stand on the deck. They were clinging to the railings, to, um, you know, floors, anything that could keep them from sliding down into the water, which was happening to a lot of people. They couldn't grab purchase, And they went sliding down the deck and into the Atlantic. At 2.18 a.m., the lights went out, came back on again, then went out for the final
1: time. And still, the Titanic just keeps on rising. Another funnel snapped from its mooring cables and came crashing down into the water, crushing even more passengers that were trying to swim away. However, the funnel was a good thing in one regard because it had just missed collapsible B and actually pushed them clear of the sinking. So Light, toller Bride, and everybody else that was grabbing a hold of collapsible B were pushed clear.
0: So the people in the lifeboats could do nothing but watch this horror unfold before them. You know, they were lucky because they got off the boat, but unlucky, so unlucky, because they're sitting there, they're, there's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can say. They're hearing the cries of people okay? Crying out in fear, crying out and saying goodbye to one another. It was just the most devastating thing that could happen in their lives. Something they had never even considered when they were boarding the Titanic. Then comes another huge, unbelievable noise. The Titanic cracked in half. The bow detached and then went crashing through the ocean to the ocean floor. The stern
1: remained afloat for another two minutes. And then the stern sank beneath the water, and Chief Baker Jockin, he was standing on the railing of the stern right by the flagpole, and he says that, you know, there really wasn't any suction, that he wrote it down pretty much as if he was on an elevator. And that he didn't even get his hair wet when it finally went down and he was able to swim away. So the stern goes under
0: and just like the bow, goes plummeting towards the ocean floor. The people in the lifeboats, the people in the water, the people standing on collapsible B, sitting in half submerged collapsible A. The ocean once held this huge, magnificent ship and now there's not even a trace of her left behind. All they could do was sit, look at one another, and in complete shock, utter, she's gone.
1: She's gone. Bruce Ismay couldn't even look. He had to turn his back. It was just too painful.
0: Others just sat in complete silence. They couldn't even form any words. Not she's gone, not anything else.
1: And then there was third officer Pittman who was in lifeboat number five. He looked at his watch and said out loud, it is 2.20. All right, before you
0: sign off, here is another fantastic podcast you should listen and subscribe to.
1: Are you ready? You bet I am. Someone light the candle. Turn out the lights. Bloody Mary.
0: Bloody Mary.
1: I'm just kidding. We're totally not doing this. Welcome to the Lady Dex Podcast. Season two. We're about to rain some seriously weird shit down on you. Pirates. Witches. And lots of bitches. More ghosts. Uh, I think they prefer to be called specters. Mummies. Lots of mummies. The wrapped in fabric kind, not the pack your lunch kind.
0: Gangsters,
1: like gangs of new york like al capone no leo no leo ships so many ships okay so here's the deal you can find us on all of your favorite podcasting apps stitcher itunes soundcloud and even spotify seriously yeah we're on spotify i mean granted i don't have spotify so i can't check well search the lady dicks podcast on wherever you listen and you'll find us guys thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of Dare world love history Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Head
0: on over to social media on Twitter and follow us at Dear Historians. Follow us on Instagram at Outlandish Historians. Why Dear Historians on Twitter? Outlandish Historians was too long. Keep up to date on all our podcasts, shenanigans
1: and behind-the-scenes goofiness. Make sure you tune in to our next episode, which is the fourth and final part of our Titanic miniseries. We're going to cover... The Carpathia arriving, what happens in that rescue, the trial, because there is one, and the aftermath. Historians out.